0: The Film Jive podcast is made possible by Audible.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com filmjive. That's audibletrial.com filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive podcast. We are recording this episode on Saturday, April 19th, 2014. My name is Zach. This is episode 67, where we're going to be discussing Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, both volumes 1 and 2. But before we get to that, joining me today is the co-host of the Cinema Subculture podcast, one of my personal favorites. Gary Sargentson, has joined me at the uh, virtual table. Welcome back, Gary. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Uh, last time you were on, we talked about... The Bill Douglas Trilogy. We said to you. But we're not talking about a movie today that's nearly as obscure as those three films. Jumping right into Nymphomaniac. So a quick rundown of the synopsis for the film. Nymphomaniac is the wild and poetic story of a woman's journey from birth to the age of 50 as told by the main character, the self-diagnosed Nymphomaniac Joe. On a cold winter's evening, the old charming bachelor Seligman finds Joe beaten up in an alley. He brings her home to his flat where he cares for her wounds while asking her about her life. He listens intently as Joe, over the next eight chapters, recounts the luscious, branched-out, and multifaceted story of her life, rich in associations and interjecting incidents. So, people that listen to the show know that I love Lars von Trier, I love his films, um, but I often have a really difficult time talking about his movies because I'm very apprehensive about... Getting into exactly why uh, I think his work is so important, at least for me personally, and I think for the benefit of the conversation, I have had suffered from major depression for a large portion of my life. So when I look at Lars von Trier's films, I I do come to them with a certain perspective that maybe is not similar to everyone else. So I may view and interpret things um, through that biased. It's also important for me because I feel like, at least in the case of Melancholia specifically, that was a film that depicted depression that very much illustrated my own relationship with it and the things that I've gone through. So, uh, in a weird way, and I've mentioned this before, uh, I feel a sort of odd kinship with Lars von Trier that I don't necessarily with other filmmakers, Um, even though he's kind of said that this isn't necessarily a part of his depression trilogy. Uh, it's still a movie that I view as ultimately a illustration of a person with depression. It's just tackling that subject in a very different uh, way than he has previously. So now I'll ask you, Gary, what you thought of the film, initial impressions.
1: Okay, yeah, well, I'll say first that Lars von is one of my favorite directors as well. I think he's like one of the most important contemporary directors out there. He's just constantly breaking ground in terms of form and uh, content as well. Like, one of the most brilliant guys at, like, exploring political themes, social themes. And I'd say, like, amongst his catalogue, like, there's about four or five films I would consider, like, my all-time favourites. But at the same time, going into this, I was expecting quite a lot. I was expecting sort of the hype that uh, sort of preceded the film was that one of the most kind of... Extreme provocative directors is going to make his most extreme work, and it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. I think overall, I found it quite frustrating because I think there is a great film in there somewhere, but I think it kind of lost. It's very messy. Um, it sort of the, the whole kind of epic scope of it kind of crushes anything. Sort of struggling to get out. Um, sort of themes that are there that are kind of thrown in. But not really fully explored, and it's funny because most of his previously film previous films are are very precise. I find it's sort of quite. Um,
0: well, he has it, a thesis, and he yeah, just he continues to push it and push it and push it into its extreme. Definitely, I I agree that maybe he doesn't he doesn't do that so much here.
1: Yeah, it's normally like it doesn't he doesn't usually do like a three act structure, but. These films have that kind of three act punch mm-hmm. where it's like they set up the naive, supposedly naive idealist downfall, and then they're kind of spiritual, or in some way, they kind of become sort of resurrected, like they become the enlightened one. Um, so it's that kind of uh, three act thing. But this is like, I guess he was going for a more like sort of novelistic structure. But it seems to be, like, just meandering and um, there's no kind of clear sort of through line. I couldn't really pull... I think I can sort of pull something out of there that he's trying to say, which is traditional Von, Von themes, but it seems that he wasn't really able to... I mean, he did give up final cut in the film, so I don't know if he was able... It just got to a point, like, he didn't really know what he wanted to say and he just said all this kind of stuff, all these ideas in there... And it was just like, um, it just, it it lacks clarity for me, I think is what I'm trying to say. And it's quite radically different in that way from what he's done before. Because he's normally quite clear, yeah, um, and quite precise. So it was a bit of a letdown for me, I think.
0: Hmm. I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you said, but I guess that that wasn't something that really was all that concerning while I was experiencing the film. I will say though that there is something to be said for the fact that I could watch both volumes back to back and then the next day go right back and watch both volumes back to back, which <laughs> maybe speaks to the lack of um emotional exhaustion that I have typically experienced, whereas this movie I think there are moments where I am really invested in Joe's character and what she's going through, but it's almost at times it's a little difficult to take seriously. I think at certain points, Um, I I don't disagree that he's, it's a mess. I think it's a really uh, interesting mess and it's a mess Mm. that only he could put put together himself. Um, I I do think that it's kind of a, a bold film from a structural perspective that he's kind of uh, unafraid to do certain things that I think other filmmakers would kind of steer clear of because of cliche or, I mean, especially just some editorial decisions that he makes that I find quite inspired, even if they kind of derive from some more traditional uh languages mm but i just i mean I viewed the film like i said as kind of his he's depicting a a depression through this idea of sexual addiction, but I think he doesn't i think he kind of gets so lost in his own digressions that he has to kind of come back to that and kind of punch in these scenes reminding you of her sort of uh, loneliness there's a scene that comes kind of out of nowhere where she suddenly starts talking about, which I guess is the nature of the film is that things are just kind of coming at you from all directions, but where he kind of mentions she talks about being a child in the hospital and having this overwhelming Mm. sense of loneliness and full of tears and it's a powerful scene but I don't know that he earns that scene to happen when it happens Sure. And, I mean, there's definitely, between the two volumes, um, I like the way that they're connected, this loss of orgasm. Mm-hmm. Which I think, for for me, I view that as, it's when somebody has lost, it's, it's you've lost your identity. I mean, people that, at least my experience with depression is that, you know, even if you want to get help, um, when you're not depressed, you almost don't know who you are anymore. You're almost living your life waiting for the next, Episode to occur because you don't know all you know is sort of this um isolation and uh oh, okay. so ridiculous, but uh you come to know that and you almost wear that as a badge, which I think her character wears her masochistic nature as a badge she's kind mm-hmm. of uh I think she's proud of the fact that not that she's a terrible person, but that she recognizes the fact that she's a terrible person, and she will do things to punish herself because of her nature.
1: Yeah, well I think one central problem with the film is the character of Joel because I think I don't know how much we can trust her. I find her quite impenetrable. Mm. Cause the film alludes to the fact that the stories she's telling are uh in some ways unbelievable. Like the film plays with that sort of self reflexivity that Seligman says, Ah come on, this is like crazy coincidence and the whole kind of setup up of the thing where it's sort of our usual suspects thing. She's picking, like, things out of the room and sort of building a story around that. Right. So I get, I don't know, I think why Von Trier's films usually work is you totally believe in the protagonist. They're completely sincere. Where in this film, like I can't really get inside Joe's head. Like, I don't know how much uh, to trust her. And she, she is a cool character, I think. Throughout the film, she, she doesn't show empathy to any anyone else really until well, she does. There's a few times where any the pedophile sort of out, outsiders, yeah, and Seligman like, I himself, mm-hmm. but um, she is a very cold character, and I think I, I couldn't really get my head around why Von Trier would throw that out there that would give us the impression or give us the idea that possibly some of this is embellished, um. I don't know what you thought of
0: that. I don't know how I feel about it because I, I love the fact that he does do it in a sense where he has a character kind of come out and say exactly what the audience is potentially thinking in this moment. Right. Mm. But I will admit that even though that moment came and went, I wasn't neces it didn't necessarily cloud my judgment of the rest of her story, if if that makes any okay. sense. I wasn't—I wasn't questioning everything that she was. Telling me from that point forward, because I don't—is that that happens near the end of Volume One? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because. right. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, like, if they ha- if he hadn't put that in there, like, I wouldn't even thought about it because I don't expect Vontria von is like narratives aren't realistic in any way, so I wouldn't have expected that. I'm aw- I'm aware that it's about the, the ideas, the philosophy, the themes. So it's a funny one. I don't really know. There's a few things like that in the film where I feel like he's made quite significant
0: missteps. Um, I will say for me that Volume 2, it feels more um, honest Okay. in the fact that it gets much darker. Mm. And I I feel like some of the things that she's recounting feel less um, likely to be fictionalized. Whereas Volume 1 has got a, a more playful nature to it and I think some of the digressive nature of it is removed. volume two feels much more streamlined in my opinion okay where the interjections are not as recurring as they were in the first half of the film mm-hmm. but yeah I don't know I I mean you've watched it four times I guess I have to watch it two more times before I can yeah to... let me just say
1: like even though that I feel this is quite somewhat a failed work I still think a lot of it's utterly compelling and there's great sections in there. I think, even like for me, like a poor Von Trier film is still infinitely better than most other movies out there at any time. So uh, I still think it's it's a very good work, even though it has quite significant flaws. So yeah,
0: yeah uh, I, I agree. I mean, I, I would still say that this, at least to this point, this is my favorite film that I've seen so far this year. Mm. And that is probably just in large part that it. I think it plays to my own sensibilities to where sure, I'm able. Yeah. I'm more willing to. Sorry, I'm more willing to overlook some of the uh, the pitfalls. But mm-hmm. I definitely. I mean, great moment. I mean the the scene with Uma Thurman. Right. Yeah. I mean that's just a masterclass in the construction of a scene, and it's so. Um, that's where i see the his own, his own kind of signature that he's the only person that could kind of uh construct the scene that way and also just how he he films that sequence is so uh in keeping i with uma thurman's character's mental space uh in that moment it's very frenetic and uh non-linear i mean that's a big thing with me too is just um his aesthetic tendencies i find um you know he's In the current landscape, I mean, handheld is used, I think, almost to a comical effect. It's used Mm -hmm. so much at this point. But I never, I I feel like he has such a handle on kind of what the handheld camera can do uh, emotionally and psychologically with the film. It's not just, well, I want this to look like a documentary, so I'll shoot it this way. I mean, there's definitely, when you that seemed to be a big thing with the dogma films anyways, with the thing. Yeah. We're trying to push this realism, but he's so at this point, he's so far removed from that. Mm. That element seems to the, the camera seems to be the only thing that's really entrenching him in mm. that dogma uh, manifesto.
1: Yeah. We've had that sort of, um, through his career, he's went through the sort of trajectory of expressionism to like pure realism. Mm-hmm. And then he's like most recent films, Santa and Melancholy. He's kind of found that balance between like the that the sort of realism of the handheld and sort of going off into digressions, which are sort of echo Tarkovsky, mm-hmm. these kind of visual tableaux, um, which I think is why uh, sort of maybe Antichrist and Melancholia are sort of the peak. But I was a bit disappointed. The visual style of this film is slightly bland. I find it's very. Into, it's very. Anything.
0: Everything's very bright. I think this the stuff in Seligman Seligman's apartment and the um the alleyway where he finds her are visually very interesting because they're mm. they're meant to look very theatrical kind mm. of old European cinema and uh the uh the level of sort of detail is almost pushed to this unrealistic surreal fashion where it doesn't even feel like a real place But yeah, you kind of buy it in the context of the film, and just even just how Seligman's apartment—I mean, it's such a—it looks like a prison cell, (laughs) almost.
1: Yeah, I mean, he dropped the the kind of expressionist flourishes completely from here, pretty much, which is a bit of a shame. Um, I guess, like, I think after Melancholia, he had said that he was disappointed in the film because he'd made it too too pretty too beautiful so he wanted to do something really nasty mm-hmm. and dirty which i think he did but i don't know it just seems a bit kind of it, bland to me um, yeah. yeah
0: i mean it's when i think about when lars von trier does dirty i think of the idiots and this is yeah <laughs> this doesn't resemble really? <laughs> the idiots much at all i mean that's a really grimy yeah sort of film i mean that's a dogma film but yeah from what I what I understand is everything was shot with sort of this diffused filter over the camera to kind of soften up all the uh, hard edges that you get with digital photography. Okay. So it it kind of extracts that digital nature to it and makes it look a uh, a little bit more like it was shot on film. But mm. hmm, I can't say that aesthetically I I was bothered by it. I definitely okay. agree that coming off of Melancholia, it's not nearly as ambitious as say the first 10 minutes of that film as they are um Mm -hmm. or definitely not antichrist but yeah i i feel like the difference between those two films and maybe this film is i don't know that he's as concerned here with building a um specific atmosphere as he is in antichrist or in melancholy and using the visuals to kind of um Create sort of a, a tonal experience, whereas this feels like you were saying much more of a kind of straightforward attempt yeah. to push film into a more literary nature, I guess. Sure,
1: yeah. um One well, other thing he, he does for the first time is he, he's inserted a lot of stock footage, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure the works. is it. kind of echo it made you think of like some of Godard's work with the, the sort of essay style film because he does a lot of things with text as well um which I don't know I don't, I don't know if I like it or not as used in a few instances that I, I hated for comic effect um particularly you know the joke about the silent duck yes remember that and yes. then oh I don't the sermon goes I uh, wouldn't want it know what the, the quacking ducks like and it cuts to some ducks
0: quacking. Actually well, know. I quite right. laughed. I mean it's such a it's such a low right. brow sort of attempt, but I um, I kind of admire the it's both pretentious and completely unpretentious right. simultaneously. And I just I don't know. I Yeah. Appeals to um, my sensibility, I guess.
1: Yeah. Some of the some of the sections work well. Um the one about back and how joe's recounting the three different lovers mm, and yes. use of stock footage there it's quite good i think but i think sometimes the choice of the style of the footage is jarring with this visual, uh, the rest of the visual style of the actual film like sometimes the stock footage seems to fit um but sometimes i don't know it's like kind of ugly um visually and it doesn't fit but well
0: Lomas, some me. some of the yeah i I like the stock footage, but I will admit that at times I found it to be somewhat distracting because, it, especially with some of the fly fishing stuff, is it looked like he was it mixing in like lo-fi video, yeah, really grainy, and then the other thing that kind of, there were certain points where I didn't understand where the aspect ratios would change, not just from the story into stock footage, but it would change within the stock footage. So you'd, you'd be in right. you know, 16 by nine and then it would cut by four by three and then it would cut back to six. And I just kind yeah. of was a little bit confused as to why he just didn't decide to just, well, even if that will look, make that look a little bit uglier, just mm. just put it in 16 by nine. Like, I don't know that it's, I mean, cause a lot of times where that was happening was with the low fi video looking material. Yeah. So it's like, just get it more ugly. I don't
1: know. Yeah. When you saw it was well this is what it was like when i saw it in the theater and on video and demand but the whole section mrs h mm-hmm. uh was one
0: eight five, yeah yeah
1: and the whole that was like apart from the stock footage the whole rest of the film was 235 i did not know what that was about like unless H maybe shot that first and they hadn't decided on the aspect ratio um, um
0: i i kind of took that as he was trying to make things feel more isolated and uncomfortable He's trying okay. to kind of heighten the drama of the moment, maybe. Mm. I don't know that it really adds anything. My thing was curious because I only saw the film in video on demand. If right. those shifts in ratio aspect ratio would be more dramatic or less dramatic depending upon where you're watching the film. Because, mm. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Grand Budapest Hotel, but that that is a movie that has revolving uh, aspect ratios as well. Where it keeps kind of
1: like... Yeah. I have seen it, and uh-huh. I thought it was an interesting idea, but I thought in practice it was un- really unnecessary because most of the film, like 90% of the film was in 4.3. Yes. So why not just do the whole thing? Like For a sake of like five minutes, I don't mm-hmm. really see the difference. Like, it's not like, oh, all right, we know this is present, because it's 2.35. Like, mm-hmm. we can kind of gather that because it's different characters, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. I wondered if you had any thoughts on... Because I do think he, he he does here continue to uh, reference Tarkovsky if quite I'm... a bit, but it seems particularly directed towards Solaris specifically. Okay. I mean, because the use of the Bach music okay. um, is directly the same music that's in Solaris. I mean, the uh, the opening shot of the complete angler is lifted right from the beginning of Solaris uh with the uh the kind of the weeds in the water. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah that's and
1: cross my mind actually but And yeah. even
0: the even the moment where she has her when she's a child and she's in the field and she levitates. Right. Reminded me a lot of the there's a moment in the mirror where there's a woman that is levitating above her bed. Um Okay. I thought that there were some maybe some parallels, at least narratively, with this and Solaris. Um Hmm. I don't know. Well, I think they're both films about kind of remembering. Okay. Things. Um and I um and I actually think that Joe and I can't remember the the main protagonist's character's name in Solaris, but I mean, I guess with with Tarkovsky, he's always kind of concerned with Humans struggling with sort of their spiritual, and their, you know, they're trying to or their moral restraint, and he's they're trying to kind of form some sort of uh, idealism, in some way. I'm probably mm. not saying that correctly, but I don't know. Um,
1: yeah, um, I think I don't know. I didn't t- really take much of Tarkovsky from this film because I don't think I. Th- I mean, I don't. I don't. I think this film's too much of a kind of mess to really compare it. Um <laughs> <laughs> even though because like Vontria like some like Antichrist, okay, I could I could put that up there with uh some of tarkovsky's best stuff, but I don't know. i c I couldn't really take a kind of central thesis from this to to compare it in that way. But um yeah, you're probably right. I mean there is a whole section called The Mirror as well, mm-hmm. a whole chapter. Um I also thought
0: that was directly kind of just I don't remember the specifics of that chapter but just kind of a self-reflection in general yeah. sort of nature but I I think Solaris deals a lot with guilt you know that character feels he's he's guilty in some way because of the death of his wife and so he's trying to change which I guess is maybe the antithesis of nymphomaniac that she's okay. not going to change for anyone I don't know I've I've just ever because I also quite like Tarkovsky a lot. I mean, my, my favorite film is the mirror. Really? Okay. Yeah. So I've kind of always been trying to figure out maybe where he's drawing upon because I mean, since the beginning, I mean, his, his initial films, I mean, the element of crime is like somebody kind of uh, mimicking Tarkovsky. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think to a fault, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I've always found that Interesting.
1: I think one of the problems with I think the sort of duality a Joe's character isn't really that well developed because it seems that she's got this thing where she kind of wants she feels this guilt that or she feels she's a bad person. But at the same time, she wants to be part of society. But at the same time, she doesn't. She feels like she's ostracized for her sexuality. But at the same time, she doesn't want to be accepted. I, that's in there, but um I feel that's kinda just kinda superficially put in there. Um, it's not I, really I, I exploded. Um
0: I do think the two Joe and Seligman, I don't think that they're shallow characters, but I think they're shallow minded. Mm. to some extent. But I think um what you're meant talking about that contradiction I feel like lonely people don't want to be lonely, but they still want to be able to feel lonely. I don't. I don't, I don't know. I'm. I, um, I. I think that there is that. I don't know. I feel like everybody kind of encounters a conflict like that at some point. Do they? Do they want to be a? You know, is being a part of society important? I think for people who would maybe consider themselves sort of
1: outsiders, there's a certain pleasure in the feeling, the persecution. Oh yeah. You like um, there's a certain sort of masochism to it. Mm-hmm. You think I'm somehow like special. I think mean, I'm saying this because I, I kind of feel feel that way myself. But um, I'm so you can have a kind of narcissism to it as well. you think I'm not accepted. So in some way that gives you that kind of pleasure that um,
0: you're not a conformist. Yeah, I guess. Um, I completely understand that. Right. And, uh, I am a complete masochist. I mean there's nobody that thinks less of themselves than I do. Right. I don't know. I almost uh, enjoy it. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's mm. uh it's a weird thing and in some ways I I understand the the shallow nature of Joe, but I don't know, I, I guess I kind of interpret it as just Seligman and Joe um, they're two separate characters, but they're kind of the merging of one in a sense they're two people coming together to mm. kind of complete a person, kind of fill a person out in a way, yeah, and sort of that that dialogue between them is sort of the the two shallow natured tendencies of those characters kind of at odds with one another
1: um yeah, I think they can be seen as the the rational and the the instinctual, yeah.
0: One thing that I did think was interesting is in the uh, delirium chapter when Mm -hmm. um, she goes to visit her father in the hospital and they use the opening of The Fall of the House of Usher to kind of narrate the beginning of that sequence. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Edgar Allan Poe comes up because I think Edgar Allan Poe, as kind of considered this great American writer, one of the things that was so... um, that was so well associated with him was his, the totality of his writing. Everything in his text was relevant to the story that he was telling, okay. which almost um, seems to be a contradiction to what Lars von Trier is attempting to do <laughs> in this film. Mm. You know, he's digressing and expanding upon ideas that ultimately don't necessarily help to tell Joe's story. Yeah. And I and also the the fact that it's the fall of the house of Usher and that, uh, the character Roderick is someone who's suffering from this um disease, when that had no sort of uh there was no medical term for it at the time, but later they described it as a hypersensitivity to, uh, like light and sound and smells and this sort of extreme anxiety. Okay. which I almost felt like maybe because we don't really know why her father is ill, we don't know what he's ill from and yeah. what what he's ultimately dying from and I wondered if maybe he was just directly sort of referencing Poe's text to sort of uh, illustrate Christian Slater's illness.
1: Okay, yeah. What um, did you think
0: I, of Christian Slater?
1: Um I thought it was I thought it was good, yeah. Um it's it's not a big role, I don't know. It doesn't get you don't really, he's kind of a just a kind of superficial character, but um, I thought he was
0: Finn, yeah. You didn't like his Ash tree monologue? I thought,
1: well, that's kind of traditional Von Trier, yeah. um sort of dialogue, although I would put it in the lesser end. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit, yeah, I, I don't know. You hated I guess this it, movie. <laughs> Uh, the ash trees had its finger in the ashes yeah uh i guess he just made that up that's not a a traditional tale is it have you heard that before
0: i don't know Uh uh-uh yeah i I quite liked it a little (laughs) trait i don't know i I i'm i'm also a big tree enthusiast oh (laughs) Oh, yeah i'm i'm a big i'm a big lover of trees so i was just like oh this is great we're getting into stories about trees i love this yeah actually uh I'm not someone who particularly enjoys when I see Christian Slater show up in a film because he tends to kind of just represent this cinematic sleaziness. But I actually thought, in a way, it felt like stunt casting in the sense Mm. that everything that you know about Christian Slater were were not going to play into those stereotypes as this sort of father. And I I quite liked his... uh, Odd accent. I mean, all the right. characters in the film that are not English have quite interesting accents, which I think I, I actually enjoy the um, the lack of a geography in this yeah. movie. Normally, that would be something that I would maybe criticize a filmmaker for, because I think one of the one of the things that's missing in most films that I see is there's no sense of of place anymore. I mean, there's yeah. very few filmmakers that really illustrate an environment. In a way that makes it feel not so much as a character, but as a, a very um, immersive space. I mean, I think David Lynch is an example of somebody that does that really well. But here, I kind of liked the fact that there was no specificity to anything. You didn't kind of know where this was happening, at at what point in time this was happening at. I mean, it's interesting in that synopsis that I read that the film claims it chronicles her up until the age of 50. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I got the impression that she was aging that much <laughs> while watching the the film at all. Um, yeah. Cause there's just kind of an, a point where we just start following, we go from Stacy Martin to Charlotte Gainsbourg, and it's just kind of yeah. like, it's, it it, it, it seems like it's only been like three years since that transition has been made. Mm. And then I wasn't complete. I don't know that he necessarily succeeded in depicting that sense of time so well but it almost feels like he wasn't really even concerned with that so yeah
1: yeah the one thing the one problem i did have with that that didn't quite work was the replacing shia Booth with the other actor yeah jerome. i hated that as well yeah i don't know it feel like that that was a totally different character mm-hmm. because what happens at the end seems totally out of character it, like the way i mean she did try to shoot him but um it seems like not something that jerome would have done previously it's so you don't vicious. think so no, I think he he comes across as quite a a generous, caring type of guy.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I I had a completely different. Really? No, I didn't. I didn't think he was generous or caring at all. I thought he was a very selfish guy. <laughs> I think I actually think the casting of Shia LaBeouf is quite ingenious in the fact that I think he cast Shia LaBeouf because the persona of Shia LaBeouf is exactly who Jerome is. So it's almost like Shia LaBeouf doesn't have to do any acting because he is, Jerome is just this arrogant sort of asshole. Okay. (laughs) Shia LaBeouf is just that guy. So it's like, that's, it's interesting Um... that we had completely different readings because (laughs) I think, I think Jerome is kind of always playing a game. He's always playing a game with Joe. Hmm. What, what I didn't like about the recasting was that when that character does show up and I, in the case of the this the different actors playing Joe, the reason why I think that works is because we are introduced to older Joe first. Mm. We are aware yeah. that this is one person. In the case of Jerome, when that actor shows up, it, do, it feels like a completely different character. Yeah. It, it almost kind of feels like that actor maybe wasn't very strong, so they kind of chose to have him. Say nothing and just kind of mm. look sort of menacing at certain points. But I Maybe. just kind of felt like at the ending that that moment may have a bit more emotional punch if it just was Shia LaBeouf playing that character. Yeah. I don't know that that was completely successful. Whereas I think one of the things that has made Lars von Trier a strong filmmaker is that I think his sense of casting has always been so uh, acute.
1: Yeah. Like I wasn't crazy about Shia Booth when I heard about he was cast, but I think he did pretty good, uh, if we can put the accent to one side. Because <laughs> I mean, I don't know how how I,
0: it none of that none of that bothers me. That. I I really right. don't. Okay, I, you know I know people with. Well, I think you have a problem with the Batman accent, um, Christopher Nolan
1: film. Oh, Christian Bale, yeah, yeah.
0: Accents are not something that right. <laughs> have ever really. Bothered me all that much. Okay. If anything, him doing a British accent is just even more amusing. (laughs) It just adds to the unreality of it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just like he's all over the English-speaking world, really. (laughs) (laughs) He's sort of uh, Scottish, English Cockney, Irish, Australian. Even Uma Uma
0: Thurman has kind of a odd accent that doesn't seem to be English (laughs) either. I've heard. I've read some people say that she sounds very Scandinavian. Okay. Yeah, even Christian Slater, I I like it because it's still so obviously his voice, but he's trying right. so hard to <laughs> like disguise it as something else. Right, um, so I I liked all of that. Yeah,
1: what made you think that Jerome char- Jerome's character was so selfish? Just the fact that he would disappear.
0: Well, the nature of hiring Joe because he thinks he's gonna get her in the sack again. Yeah, is a little. Um, I would even kind of venture to say it's a bit misogynistic. I mean, I haven't, in, I my feeling has always been that Lars von Trier views men as the cause of all evil. <laughs> so, mm. um, which I agree with, men are evil. Men are the, <laughs> men are the worst. But um, that and then the fact that he would take her to town just to have her kind of walk around with and hold his coat. Mm. He seems to kind of, um, you know, if you're not going to sleep with me, I'm going to kind of live these sadistic uh, fantasies out in my own way then.
1: Yeah, I guess. But a lot of that stuff is uh, she kind of constantly trumps him mm-hmm. by sort of... she's She has power. She'll turn on down for sex. She's actually the one who has a better grasp of traditional male tropes. Like she's better at parking the car. Uh, mm, in the no, first yeah. scene, she, can, she knows how to turn on his
0: mopeds. Or whatever. but But don't you think uh, the very act of him leaving is... I've trumped you kind of thing. Like oh, it's right. the ultimate yeah. trump. And marrying the secretary
1: that... Possibly, although hmm, it's hard to know if if that he's aware of our love for him, I guess. So who knows? I don't know.
0: Because there's even the scene where she's cleaned up and she puts the rugula on his desk and he comes yeah. in. Uh-huh. And he has her get up and leave and have her come back in. and Yeah. I don't know. I I quite like Shia LaBeouf in the movie, though. Yeah. A lot of people don't like him, and I just feel like that's an extension of what they know of him as a celebrity figure. Okay. And so they're they're immediately going to look to kind of give Shia LaBeouf a hard time regardless of whether his performances are any good. I mean, I've always kind of felt like, I mean, I grew up with Shia LaBeouf on the Disney channel. All right. On even Stevens shoving carrots up his nose and things like that. (laughs) Right. But I've always kind of felt like he... I've never felt like he's a bad actor. I think he mm. is a very average actor that just happens to be in a lot of really bad to mediocre films. But I think Lars von Trier kind of displayed that he can be... If he's used in the right way, I think he can be quite effective. Yeah. But I don't i don't know that I'd, I felt any sympathy for him. Okay. Even the nature of giving her permission to go and have sex with other men. Mm-hmm. And then I, I guess I my question is his his kind of ultimatum with her, is it more because of the safety of their child or is it more out of jealousy? Because the, we then learn that Jerome ends up sending his child into a foster home anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I felt more sorry for him. I felt like in that section of the story, um, Joel betrays him by leaving but I mean I really like the first section where um, the office like when he, she and Isha hired that section of the film I love I think that's great, they're really good together mm-hmm. um, so I think I have a kind of warmer opinion of them, the, the character um, but maybe right, I don't know I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective
0: I, I do you feel sympathy for her in leaving her, leaving them, in that moment at all? No,
1: I understand why. It's like she has to that the part where she's married, she's sort of integrated into society, but ultimately she's not. She can't really live that way, so she has to extract herself again. As a part of, the, I, just, I like that as a, a storyline, but uh, I can't remember what's going to say. There you go.
0: I had a lot of sympathy in the sense that here is a person that has become a slave to their addiction. Mm. They're, they've become a slave to their body. She's become a slave to her body. She really can't. Um, uh, what, what was I trying to say? But she, she can't, her body is controlling the s- decisions that she makes. Yeah. Having to um, come to that decision. I found quite tragic. Yeah, maybe I guess
1: it's, Still, of uh, what I said before about the character being so cold, like I don't really have any empathy with her mm. compared with other volunteer protagonists. So, But one thing I was slightly puzzled by, at the end of part one, she loses her orgasm, but she still seems to continue to be an infomaniac. I didn't quite get that. It's just like she has to do it, even if she can't feel
0: anything. My impression is, is that she's trying to do everything in her power to get it back right Mm. get that sensation back but uh i don't i think i might have mentioned this earlier but i guess my impression of her losing the orgasm was that so she loses an orgasm what is what does she do (laughs) like what does she do now she's so accustomed to continuously having sex and searching for that sort of fulfillment now she can't she can't obtain that fulfillment through the only way that she's known how to do that. So Mm -hmm. now what's the alternative fishing, (laughs) cooking. I mean, what's that? That's I guess that's the thing is that she is a a person defined by her sexuality. Yeah. So if she cannot, she cannot satisfy that, then who is she anymore? Mm Hmm. So my feeling was the loss of the orgasm is the loss of sense of self. So her rigorously attemp- attempting to have sex was trying to f- find herself again. I mean the the constant uh, very literal di- the dialogue that she says, you know, fill all of my holes mm. frequently. It's if if she cannot have sex this is going to this is going to be really uh juvenile but if she's not filling herself with cum then she's just filled with loneliness yeah Um, so i don't know i i mean i thought the concept of her losing an orgasm was quite brilliant the idea of a character who is a nymphomaniac losing their orgasm
1: yeah i don't know i did like that how the first part ended but i don't know if part two um really dealt with that it doesn't, issue, yeah. because, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't last very like, long. She just yeah. carries on, okay, she just, like, fucking guys constantly, but, like, it would have been more interesting, maybe, if she was in total despair, um,
0: more so. Well, it's also that soon after that happens in part two, she has the baby. Yeah. Um, And then once she's had the baby, it returns, Right. which I didn't completely understand the logistics behind that. Does birth restore... All <laughs> orgasms, like well, I didn't, I didn't exactly know what he was trying to communicate with the fact that she has a child, and then her s- sexuality is restored because there's even yeah. the moment in the hospital where she sees the laughing baby, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know enough about the story of Noah and Noah's son Ham coming out of the womb laughing oh, yeah. to necessarily understand what that literary reference means, mm. but I, I guess I just, I, I don't know if that was. Um a an epiphany similar to when she sees the two um, nymphomaniacs in her uh, spontaneous orgasm. If it was just like another re- religious experience that restores that sensation, yeah. So it would have been interesting, I think, if that would have continued, and that she would have had to. I mean, well, yeah, the uh, Lord of continued to suffer, but um,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think. One section I don't like at all is the Dangerous Men section. I think that's just silly. And it's creating a juvenile, oh, us like black guys.
0: I agree, but I almost think that he's subverting it. I think he's, um, yes, the idea of two black men and a white woman is a very stereotype, cliched image. But I almost think he's kind of, uh, he's showing it to you and then reminding you how disgusting this actually is as sort of a stereotype. Um, possibly, I mean, I think
1: ultimately what that's about is um, a lot of the film is like men are completely stupid and they're just obsessed with sex,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that scene kind of exemplifies that. But I don't know; I didn't feel it was necessary. I guess because that film is kind of the tension's built up. Thought this might quite be might, quite might be quite scary. Um, the fact that they don't speak the same language and all that, but then it just becomes comical and
0: a uh, self-chivalry. I don't I, I, I yeah, I don't know. I guess I have a juvenile sense of humor. Right. <laughs> I thought that was both funny but then I kind of felt like as it continued their incessant nature of continuing to communicate with one another almost kind of drifted into this um very uncomfortable territory where I started to feel like he's kind of depicting the cliche but then he's kind of um criticizing it at the same mm. time. So I don't know. It also may just be he's trying to give you a moment of uh, lightheartedness before you then continue into this very extended (laughs) sequence of S&M. Okay, yeah. Hmm. What did you think of the Jamie Bell sequences? Yeah,
1: I thought in itself it's a good sequence, but it's the same with the same problem I have a lot of the film. It's like, okay, what's this adding up to? There's nothing that, no section of the film that I didn't particularly like. And it's not like it's badly paced, but I just thought, yeah, it's a good scene. Jamie Bell's good. Um, it gets really dark, but I just, I don't really know what it was. I mean, that that is preceded by the thing, um, the Eastern Church, the Western Church, the way of pain, the way of um, happiness. So it, like, she's kind of rejected the family and she has to go and do this thing. Um so that's fine. But um, I don't know. It just wasn't, it didn't it didn't come to fruition. It didn't really uh, get anywhere. Um, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of took it as at least the, she leaves the family and goes directly to him. It's, it's her pursuing this S&M was almost um, a masochistic uh, behavior just to continue to punish yeah. herself for her sexuality almost. Mm-hmm. I thought the casting, again, of Jamie Bell was kind of interesting. It almost feel like he was kind of uh, playing with, like, the little man syndrome idea almost. Oh, right, the okay. little Jamie Bell that we all know from, like, right. about a boy <laughs> is the guy that's beating her. Um, but I thought, I really like the, um, the design of that space and how sort of uh, right, yeah. sterile everything was. Again, which I feel like that is a scene where he's kind of calling upon that idea of Carl Dryer that Carl Dreyer had that you, as you remove things from an environment, yeah, it becomes almost more realistic or, um, you know, naturalistic in a, in a sense or sure. something along those lines. So I like when he does things like that. Yeah. Well, we talk
1: about the Antichrist reference because I, I absolutely hated that. <laughs> I, I've, I've no idea what the fuck is he trying to do as he sort of Laughing at himself in a way and saying, I'm so pretentious, like, here's a joke. Like, or is he laughing at the audience? I guess not, he wouldn't be laughing at the audience really, but it seems like he's belittling his own work.
0: Because,
1: mm. um, I find it's a similar idea. That it's like the woman kind of abandoning her child. Is she culpable with his death? Or whatever um that's fine um but why make the shot look exactly like the same as snow and then the handle music um i really uh I, it was unfathomable to me i don't know
0: well there there is this um theory that i've read that some people have that think n- nymphomaniac is a lot of it is lars von T- trier directly commentating on his own mythology um because there's even the point where seligman mentions that he's a he's a Zionist, but he's not anti-Semitic. Oh, right. I mean, I don't, to me, I don't really consider that like an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. It doesn't seem interesting at all.
1: I mean, um, no, I mean like for him to have that conversation, I mean, I don't mean this. Right. Yeah. Um, um, it's like one thing I thought of was in um, called clockwork orange where, um, you know, that scene where um, Alex is looking through the record store and he, was it a copy of 2001
0: yeah
1: and it's like well, people have said okay like I, I, this is like kubrick uh, he's so at the height of his game like he's not really influenced by anyone but himself right <laughs> i don't know how much that's true or not but um i i mean i don't i think it's um i i don't i don't know yeah. that you
0: could say that about von trier though because it especially in a film like this so much i feel of his own so much of the narrative and the especially the digressions seem to be built upon literary references that he makes directly yeah again i mean i i do feel like there are references to someone like tarkovsky which he i know he again in the uh, the special thanks credits the post credit sequence in this film he thanks him again oh, okay right which i know you know there was like a huge backlash when he did that with antichrist oh what an indulgent thing (laughs) to do
1: yeah i mean if he is if it is just like a comment on his own mythology i feel like that's completely indulgent and not interesting to anyone but him and at the same time why why if antichrist is a serious piece of work why Mm -hmm. belittle it i really don't know
0: i went into the movie knowing that he referenced it at some point okay Heard a conversation, overheard a conversation with some people that had mentioned it, but I didn't really know the context mm. in, in which it happened. So my assumption was because, Willem, like I was mentioning, I think before we started, because Willem Dafoe was in the film, I assumed that it had to do with Willem Dafoe. So that was my expectation. <laughs> so when I saw the kid crawling out of the. <laughs> and he starts to walk around. And then the music kicks in. Mm. It's amusing, but I do agree with you that it's silly. Yeah. And to an extent, it does maybe belittle the work of Antichrist, which I don't know. It's interesting because he is someone that has always seemed to have a very conflicting relationship with his own work. I mean, it seems like he at times hates some of the films that he's made, but then at other times he seems to love them. Mm. because I know initially Antichrist was a movie that he was quite proud of or he didn't like or it was just it was just something to get him out of depression yeah. it wasn't necessarily a film that was as important to him I guess even though it seems to be a very personal piece of work um I gi- I I give him credit for having <laughs> the balls to <laughs> just Such- go all out with it you know it's <laughs> like I was a little disappointed that that it didn't go to like black right. and white and everything was shot <laughs> in a phantom camera, and things really slowed down. But I thought it was fun. I, okay, <laughs> I, I can understand how somebody would hate it. I completely yeah, okay. understand, that. and I'm not even saying that I think it's a piece of brilliant filmmaking. It's it's him, almost him pandering to his audience because, I, I mean, I guess maybe he's using it as a point of reference to. I mean, it's kind of a lazy way to do it, but build tension in a sense that mm. because you're familiar with this, you have this expectation that this kid is actually going to fall.
1: Yeah. I mean, he could have even, he could have went as far as using that same idea, like the kid or the kid might fall out the window, but he didn't have to reference Antichrist by the music and kind of having the snow and all that, it like made it look similar. If he just had a kid like possibly falling out the window, that'd be okay. I think, but uh <laughs> that's why uh, uh, another problem I had with it. Like, I would say this is by far his most kind of blatantly comic film. Mm-hmm. uh What, whatever the exception of like the boss of it all, but that's kind of a comedy. But of his kind of serious, like dark, kind of his normal style. Like, there's a lot more kind of blatant comedy, like blatant jokes. And this, which I didn't care for at all, um, I felt a lot of them were quite contrived. Like, normally this uh, stuff is kind of funny in a kind of blackly comic way, but it's like the humor's quite dry, it's quite subtle, it's just like kind of in the dialogue and things like that, whereas like there were obvious jokes in this with like the cutting, particularly the, the silent duck thing, yes. before like you had a, a juxtaposition, cutting back to Seligman, oh yeah. And it was, like, for comic effect. And it did play when I saw it in, in the cinema. Um, it was getting big laughs, which uh, I was quite surprised at. Because, like, um, you don't expect a voluntary film to be, like, to be going down like that. But And I, I, like, even though there's a lot of comedy in these movies, I tend to, like, see it more tragic as it's the the comedy is so ridiculous it's tragic yeah, it's, um, I mean,
0: it's kind of got a Shakespearean, yeah, yeah, yeah. to it in a certain sense,, but, um, yeah. but I do agree that his comedy here seems to be more in the in the way that he constructs the film necessarily than the characters directly, you know, making jokes in the dialogue. I mean, i the one scene that I did think I did like a lot, which I thought was a direct callback to melancholia, was the spoon sequence in the restaurant, um because there is a scene in melancholia where John hurt keeps hiding the spoons in his jacket. And Udo Kier is the guy that keeps coming around and giving him the spoons. Yeah, okay. But it's not as sophisticated as I think sometimes his humor can be in other films.
1: Yeah, it seems a bit bit cheap, some of the the Mm guys. And there's a bit too many nods to the audience, I feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say that despite its structure, I did kind of feel watching this that this is perhaps the most conventional film that he's, he's made to this point anyway.
1: Yeah, he could be right. Um...
0: I think when he does things conventional, he use, he kind of a uh, breathes new light life into them, mm-hmm. but it just, it did seem like a much more playful film in that way that he wasn't afraid to kind of, um, because I, I know I've read some comments from him regarding melancholia that he he doesn't like the film aesthetically because he feels like he's made a mainstream movie. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm curious. I mean, I know he's not talking to the press anymore, but I wonder his feelings in regards to this film where the praise isn't necessarily unanimous, but people seem to be enjoying it in a way that uh, a Lars von Trier film isn't typically enjoyed. Mm. But then that makes me just wonder if like you were saying, if the, the thesis is kind of lost in the messiness. if
1: Possibly, if- yeah, because it's the least von Trier of recent von Trier movies, maybe. Mm. <laughs> so that's why it goes across better and maybe why I don't like it. But um, it's funny, there's a, The Guardian a film critic, Peter Bradshaw, he, is, he, he normally hates von Trier's films, but he loves this one. And he was saying like, he liked all the comedy in it. And I was like, No. That's why I hate it.
0: <laughs> I do you don't hate, hate, it, do you no, hate I Peter Bradshaw? I, no,
1: no, he's a good critic, actually. But um, uh, as far as funny, I, mean, I don't know.
0: Um, Could talk about the ending. Um, Going, I guess, all the way to the end of the film. Firstly, I guess we did talk about not the ending ending, but the scene with Jerome in the alleyway. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the, the three plus eight? reoccurring again did you take anything away from that or
1: i don't know no it meant nothing to me like i thought the whole numerology thing was another like idea that was tossed up on the screen and like not really fulfilled mm.
0: um i i think that number's eight is interesting as in that there's eight chapters mm. and i kind of maybe took that as and, and she may even mention this in the movie but that ultimately all of this uh, suffering and all of this sexual um, behavior has come down to eight thrusts, um, and I I had read something in a review where they they mentioned that the value of eight is the kabbalistic nature uh, tradition. So the number right. s- the number seven is perfection, and eight represents the number higher than nature. So it's one beyond perfection. Now. That statement, I don't know how that applies to this mm. exactly because I don't, I I don't see the number eight as something uh, positive in relationship to this film anyway. It seems quite sad in a way.
1: Yeah, I guess you could see it as going full circle from her at the start to P mm-hmm. at the end, and the fact that I think one of the ideas of the film is like men are inherently misogynist, mm-hmm. so it's like him doing it again to someone else. And the cycle goes on. I don't know.
0: But the very, very end. Um, what did you think? Yeah. Okay. Well, it was funny
1: because as the film was like the first time I saw it, it was going on. I thought, okay, like surely we can't just end like this. huh. It just. Um. It didn't seem to build into anything. But then, like the last, like two minutes or something. That's that's the moment. It, I think it becomes a one film. film. Uh, and I love I love the ending because. That's when finally realised that um, it's Seligman that's actually the sort of naive idealist, and he gets corrupted, or he reveals himself to be a hypocrite, to be evil, uh, in the same way that uh, Joe's thesis that um, humanity is hypocritical, um, she's a bad person, and so is everyone else. Um, Seligman debases himself and reveals that all humanity is uh, has his primal uh, <clears throat> sort of selfish has a sort of selfish nature. Mm-hmm. Um so that's you get that arc at the end that Von Trier usually does that um uh, Seligman tries to be the rational um pure virgin innocent one but ultimately that's not possible and joe is what joe is sort of indicated in her philosophy
0: i agree with all that and then and i love the ending as well but i did see it as um my feeling with lars von trier is that i don't consider him a complete pessimist in the sense that i think even when his films edge and tragic tragically there is some form of optimism present in Melancholy, the end of the world is almost a relief. Mm. In Dancer in the Dark, she dies knowing that her son will not suffer the the way in which she did. Yeah. So I think when these tragic things happen, there's still some sort of optimism. And my feeling with the way that this film then ends, yes, it continues sort of my theory of his thesis on his depiction of men um, and kind of reinforcing Joe's own beliefs but it also it convinced her that she is completely alone you know like this was the last person that there was potentially any uh hope of friendship yeah for her and now that now that that has been proven otherwise to her it's almost like now she can um move forward knowing that i'm alone and then go from there um Mm. i don't know i thought it was quite Brilliant. I mean it's it's amazing what he can do emotionally with just a shot of a doorway. <laughs> like right. he goes back to that door and I'm just like because as the ending is wrapping up I'm going th- there's like a you know when he says I'll I'll make sure that you're not disturbed and there's right. these two close-ups of them saying goodnight to one another. I'm like laughing because I'm just go- there's no way <laughs> this he is going to end it he's going to you know this is just wrapped too nicely. Yeah. He's just smearing cheese all over this. There's no way that this is how this is gonna end. And then <laughs> and then when he cuts back to that door, I'm just like Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I knew that this this had to happen. Yeah. So when it came in, I there was even me knowing what that it was gonna happen, it was still just kind of like this Oh I agree with you. I agree mm. with you, but I wish that I didn't. I wish <laughs> that you were wrong, you know?
1: But... Yeah, it, it, happens, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy, but uh, <laughs> it has got to be got to be corrupted. Right.
0: <laughs> um, Somebody has to go down. It can't be Yeah, evil. that's it. <laughs> I, I do ha- want to reiterate that I do think I liked the movie quite a bit more than you did, even though you did like the film. But I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with any of your criticisms, but there's something to be said for a movie that still feels like an event. Mm -hmm. I know that for some people going to see Captain America, the winter soldier is an event for me. That's more like contemplating suicide, but just because I, I hate Marvel, but that's, that's well, well documented. Um, So when I, Lars von Trier is releasing a two volume film, Mm. I am legitimately really excited about seeing that. And watching the movie is just kind of like this. um, This is cheesy, but it reminds me of why I do love movies so much, even if the end result isn't necessarily um, as strong as some of his previous works. But even going into this, I, as um, excited as I was, I didn't really necessarily have an expectation of what this movie would or would be, well, be, wouldn't be, be. And I know you mentioned that you were a little let, let down by the lack of graphic nature in which he depicted the sex. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I get, I guess some of that's to do with... It's not fair to judge the film on that because it was more like how the film was promoted or marketed. But um, it seemed like it was very safe even by his own standards. But there is, hopefully we will see the the uncut five and a half hour version.
0: Yeah, and then you have to come back and we'll do another. <laughs> yes, episode. definitely.
1: Uh, I think there is still questions around the film with the two versions if the the, the longer cut might make me look at it differently. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if he can, I think it's probably a cut that he would be okay with, but there maybe is some things that, our producer decisions maybe right. that the more broad comedic aspects are taken by the producer produ, uh, production uh, edit but maybe that's just me hoping for too much um so i'm anxious i'm um, hopefully that will come out in blurry or something i don't think mm-hmm. i think the blurry is announced but it's just the standard cut but maybe criterion or something might be able to put it out or something um be amazing. But, um, yeah, so the there is that kind of question mark over the film
0: at the moment for me. From what I've read, you know, there is quite a bit more penetration in yeah. his cut, um, and there are um, he lingers. There's some more lingering on things longer than there was in this film. I know the train sequence, I I guess, is quite a bit longer. Okay, in his cut than in the edited version. I don't know what I I guess for me I'd be more curious to see if there was more stuff with. Joe's relationship with certain characters, right? Yeah. So, I look forward to watching his five and a half hour cut. Yeah, when it does become available. Although I think
1: maybe I think it's too long as as so I don't know. Oh really? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not that it's, there was any point I was bored or it was badly paced, but I think the four hours is like somewhere in there. There's a great film, mm-hmm. but the way it's presented at the moment it's not it because there's moments that I love in the film, but I don't know. It needs, like, just simplified, I think. What's the idea? What's the central theme? Yeah, get that up front.
0: But, you want? You just want all the comedy removed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh I'll be interested to see what he does next, because hopefully he's not lost it. But he <laughs> seems like he's kind of, with the fact that he gave up, the kind of one of our most, um, what do you say, definitive auteurs mm-hmm. gave up Final Cut on a film. That's kind of somewhat a contradiction. So hopefully he can, whatever problems he was having, he can get back on track. But
0: all right, so um, Jive Turkeys. Out of out of five, how many are you, hmm. nymphomaniac?
1: Tough one. Um. I think I'd have to go three. I'm tempted to go four, but uh, I can't really justify it. You, no. you can
0: do halves if you. Like all to right. Do
1: a well. Hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll split the difference. So go three and a half.
0: Well, despite all of that, I'm still, and Gary'll roll his eyes at me, but I am gonna give it five. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a perfect film, but uh, with that aside, I I did really love it. I'm going to watch it again. How would you rate it and his canon? Up. Ooh. That's a good question. There are about 5 of his films that could very easily be in like if I was going to do a top 20 list or something like that. I love Breaking the Waves, Dogville, Melancholia, and Dancer in the Dark. And I quite love Antichrist also. It's not above any of that, those films. And then there's a couple of his films that I still have not seen. I have not seen Epidemic. Okay. And I have not seen Europa, I think, right. are the are the two. Yeah, I don't know, because I really like The Idiots a lot. I know a lot of people have really divisive reactions to that, but I quite love that film. I think it's quite interesting. I mean, a Lars von Trier film, for me, is still better than 90% of yeah anything else that I'm going to see, so I don't know. It's at the bottom for you, huh?
1: Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, it's not in the top 10, I don't think. <laughs> um, how many films has he made? It's one, two, three, four, five, six. What, 13? Like something. Like
0: that. Is that with the media TV movie? Is- oh, right, no. 14. Do you count the kin- kingdom in that? <laughs> <Or> no. no. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, But there's not many of his films that I would consider worse than
0: this. I think the element of crime is worse than this. Oh, no, no. No,
1: no. No, I think that's a great film. It is quite derivative, as you said. And he is trying to find his feet, but um, I enjoy that.
0: Oh, I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, uh, okay. <laughs> there's whole sequences that seem to just be <laughs> lifted out of Tarkovsky films. It's just. Yeah. A
1: like... third man as well, always debt to, I think. Yeah, the whole Harry Gray, Harry Lyme. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I actually felt that's interesting because I felt like the alleyway sequence in Nymphomaniac did kind of uh, resemble like post-war Austria in the third man a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I love Nymphomaniac. Gary hated it. (laughs) No. So any any other thoughts on on the film before we start to wrap things up?
1: Um. Not really. I mean, I think I was so critical of it just because I have such high mm. expectations because he's one of my favourite directors and I, I was a bit disappointed. But um, it's a significant drop in quality for me. But even that is still it's still a compelling film in many places. I could, I mean, I've watched it four times and yeah, I love <laughs> a lot of it. But uh, overall, I just think it didn't come together.
0: I have to laugh when you say you watched it four times because... The, you know, it's probably the worst film he's made, but I have dedicated 16 hours to it. So.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You could watch any other film eight times and get 16 yeah, hours of it. Yeah. But. It's a-, a quick reminder for anyone who didn't listen to last week's episode. We do have a new segment on the podcast that occurs every other episode where we present a trivia question and then ask the listeners to write us and provide the answer. Um, The winner will get to select a film for us us to discuss on an upcoming episode. Uh, So last last week's trivia question was, uh, what is the highest grossing film in Japanese cinema history? To tie in with our Goke Body Snatcher from Hell discussion. So if you know the answer, write us in at filmjive at gmail.com and we'll be announcing the winner on the next episode. Gary, thank you very much for being here. Pleasure speaking with you again. No problem. Thanks for having me. And please let us know uh, where we can find Cinema Subculture.
1: You can find us at facebook.com slash Subculture. Probably the easiest place to find it. We're on iTunes and there's a blogspot, which is cinemasubculture.blogspot.com.
0: You guys are, your next episode's going to be on David Cronenberg's Crash, correct? Yes. Yeah. Are you a fan of that film? I'm a
1: big fan of it, yeah. Cronenberg, um, overall, I'm not that. There's a few films I love and a lot of stuff that I don't care for, but that's one that I do like.
0: I actually quite like Cronenberg and I hate that film. All right. (laughs) I think what I do think about that is interesting about Crash is I do think it is shot in a way that is unlike any of his other films. I do Mm. think technically it's incredibly impressive, but I just find it so cold and alienating. And, uh, I also read the book, like when I knew, I mean, I didn't see that film when it came out, but when I did come to realize that he had adapted the Ballard book, I was quite Mm. excited and really disappointed in the overall result. Um, so look forward to Crash when that does come out. Is there anything else interesting coming up?
1: Um, there is another episode planned, which I can't think of off the top of my head um we did one recently for our review of under the skin if mm-hmm. we just did we just went and see the movie and then we just recorded it in the car and threw it as an episode uh we may do some more of that um no i can't think of the next one so all
0: right well film drive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com as well as on facebook tumblr and stitcher radio please write us a positive itunes review Uh, Next episode, we're going to be taking a look at Byron Haskins' 1964 science fiction film, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And that's about it. So thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode. And until next time, keep on jiving.